Welcome to the Traveling On Radio Show, your premier source for travel news and information, featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, the Traveling On Radio Show on TalkZone.com. And hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on the Traveling On Radio Show, the show that celebrates the responsible traveler. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are broadcasting from our studios right outside of our nation's capital. On today's show, we're going to take you to the plains of Texas, Amarillo, Texas, famous for its big Texan steakhouse, home to a 72-ounce steak uh, that you get to eat for free if you can do so within an hour. Yum. And, yeah, indeed, yum, but a big tummy ache for some. And also its famed rodeo culture, Amarillo is where the real Texas begins. From its historic Route 66 to the quirky Cadillac Ranch, Amarillo is a place that surprises at every turn. And today, we're going to give you a feel for what makes this an intriguing place to visit. Have you ever wanted to know what real rodeo is? Well, Amarillo is the heart of the roots of rodeo. And the city annually hosts the World Championship of Ranch Rodeo. We'll introduce you to the sport with the help of Gary Morton of the Working Ranch Cowboys Association. Then we'll explore how Native American culture and dance is being honored and preserved while helping to develop the young people of Amarillo through the dynamic Hawaii Kiva Indian Museum as we speak to its director, Charles Ritchie. And you can't visit Amarillo without spending some horse time. And we'll take you to the American Quarter Horse Association's Hall of Fame and museum and visit with their executive director ross middleton finally we'll debut a new segment and introduce you to this month's traveling angel tammy van dyke who is making a difference in the lives of many around the world through the world hope missions a faith-based organization dedicated to helping women and children around the world remember we welcome your comments and questions at any time you can email us at comments at travelinradio.com and before we move on to our segments, uh, just a couple of quick announcements. We are in the process of uh, changing our names. We won't change our format, but uh, we will change the name to reflect as our core values of responsible travel, culture, and heritage preservation. And so as of mid-March, our name will become World Footprints. So we'll be known as World Footprints Radio. We will change our domain, but in the interim, you can uh, visit us at travelnradio.com to sign up for our social networks and also our newsletter. And, uh, and after that, we'll, we'll direct, but more news to follow, but certainly follow up, uh, or sign up for our newsletter so that uh, you can keep on uh, top of all the uh, information and all the things that we're doing. And then finally, we are uh, on our way to Vancouver uh, for the 2010 Winter Olympics. And so uh, we're looking forward to you joining us there. We're looking forward to going and, mm-hmm. and, and all we'll the... We'll be inter- doing some live shows. Absolutely. And, and meeting some great people. Uh, and so again, uh, join us this time, uh, this place, same frequency. Every year, real cowboys and cowgirls from the states and Canada invade Amarillo to pursue the title of world champion in ranch rodeo. These true-to-life working ranch cowboys and cowgirls take the sport of rodeo back to its roots, as we learn from Gary Morton of the Working Ranch Cowboys Association, who spoke to us on our recent trip to Amarillo. What we do here is sort of what you might say is the roots of rodeo. You know, rodeo began as this contest uh, among cowboys out in the pasture with about their cowboy skills. 
also what Ranch Rodeo is different. It's different than any rodeo that most folks have seen. Ranch Rodeo takes it back to its roots, sort of. And the, the events we do is different than uh, any rodeo that you might see in that it's really more based on the skills involved on a ranch. And, and Gary, I understand that you have uh, 12 ranches competing, and the ranches, ranches, it's not, this ranch rodeo is not an individual uh, competition, yeah, it's a team competition. Yes, we actually have 24 ranches here, and it is a team competition. Now, we, we do five events. Some of those events are one-man events, like the Bronc Ride. Uh, of course, that's one man on a horse, a bucking horse. Uh, the difference between it and normal rodeo, or what most people think of as rodeo, is a subtle difference, but it's very crucial in that these guys have to ride the saddles that they ride every day on the ranch. So the uh, normal rodeo uses a saddle that's specially designed to ride bucking horses. The ranch saddle is, is designed to set in 18 hours a day, and it's a little different than a bucking horse saddle, okay? And, and the bucking horse saddle sort of gives the rider more of an advantage. The ranch saddle does not. The bucking horse saddle sits further on the horse, up near his shoulders and his withers and his point of bending. The ranch saddle sits back, so when a horse bucks, it's a little harder to ride with. So we make them use ranch saddles, and that's a one-man event. We have an event called Stray Gathering that's a four-man event. And we turn two steers out in the arena and uh, four cowboys. And they have to rope, all four cowboys have to rope. They head and heel the steer. And there's two of them, so they head and heel two steers. And then they tie them down. And that, that's an actual ranch skill where you've got cattle that are wild that you can't gather. Uh, or they're not near a corral where you can work them. So uh, you have to rope them and tie them down. And, and that's actually, you know, related to everyday workings of a ranch. We've got another event called Team Penning. And it's a three-man event. And you'll see a herd of cattle at one end of the arena. And for... for uh, it's really for the public's sake, we number those cattle, and the numbers are very obvious. Now, if you were on a ranch, you would do this kind of work based on brands. But uh, this is a timed event done for a quick time, and I might say the stray gathering, which I just talked about, is also a timed event. They have to do it, see who can do it the quickest. Uh, so the more spirited horse, the better score. Absolutely. And, and our judges are very good. They can watch that horse, and, and there's certain things you can watch for, and, and that earns points. So out of 100, a perfect ride on a perfect horse would be 100 points. And, and typically the horse would get 50, and the rider would get 50. That's the max they can get. And I think the leading score right now in the bronc riding is 76 points. And half of that was the horse, and half of it was the rider. Mm -hmm. Are some of these are the horses um, for that particular sport? Are they uh, um, horses from the individual ranches, or no, okay. no, no? There are rodeo contractors, and that's what they do. They have bucking horses and those kind of things, and we hire one of the best contractors in the business out of Colorado. Mm -hmm. His name's Harry Vole, and. Uh, 
Uh, these horses are they're athletes, just like a racehorse or a cutting horse or a jumping horse. Mm-hmm. They're very well cared for. They're highly valuable. And Harry uh, uh, Bold has got some of the best in the business. These horses aren't saddle broke at all. They're just, or are they? Oh, you'd be amazed. Some of them, when they uh, put them in the chute, saddle them and all those things, some of them, uh, when they do that, they know it's what is expected of them, and they book. Wow. Sometimes there are some, and it's rare, but, but there are some that you can just saddle up and get a catalog, too. Put them in the chute, and they'll book. <laughs> about the Team Penny three-man event. You'll see a herd of cattle. You'll, uh, you'll see that there are sets of three with, with like numbers. There'll be three number ones, three number threes, whatever. As the cowboys, these three cowboys, ride toward that herd, the announcer will give them the number. They do not know the number in advance. They've learned the number as they're riding toward the herd of cattle. And there's one man that's going to go in there and cut out separate out by itself out of the herd all the number ones if his number is number one he's going to separate out all the number ones which will be three in each bunch and they'll get those three and there's a pin set up at the other end of the arena a small pin and those guys have to bring that those three and pin them in that pin for a quick time so that's our third event we have an event called Wild Cow Milk, which you'll get kicked out of. It's like going to NASCAR and waiting for the wreck. Uh, the cows win. Uh, you, you'll see, uh, and, and I should say, it, this is a four-man event. Uh, there's one man horseback. He ropes the cow. Stops the cow. Then there are three men on foot. Two of them are called muggers. And it's their job to get a hold of the cow, hold her still, while another man milks that cow into a long neck bottle. Once he gets milk in that bottle, there's a designated spot in the arena with the judge. And he's supposed to carry his bottle and run back to that spot. At that time, the, the flag drops and their time is... But he can be disqualified if he didn't get any milk in his bottle. The milk has to pour out of the bottle. Big range cows, which you'll see tonight. Last night, it was great that the crowd loved it. They had accomplished all of this, and they were on the other end of the arena. The judge is standing at, at the opposite end. Of course, they can do their all of this anywhere in the arena, but sometimes they don't have control of it. And they, these guys got the cow stopped way at the other end of the arena. They got her milked, and the cowboy is running his thumb over the end of that long neck bottle. It's fast time, and they some of these guys can run. They're running, and they turn the cow loose, and see the rope's got to be off of the cow before they can get a time. So they, they strip that rope off the cow, and, and you know, that, that event itself is probably not real likely that it would happen on the ranch they, in that manner. Uh, it's a great crowd pleaser. But there are times on the ranch when a cow has uh, mast- mastitis or something like that that you do have to milk her out and, and help the healing process of her udder. Now, Gary, you've spoken about the judges. What does it take to become a judge, and 
talk about some of the controversies with uh, the scoring. To be a ranch rodeo judge, you've got, got to have a pretty good knowledge of, of the ranching and the event itself. Uh, we're fortunate in the fact that as far as judges' opinions go. We've only got one event that judges' opinions really come into play, and that's the bronc riding, where they get more or less style points. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there are times when when those points are questioned. Uh, We've got great judges here. We've been using them all 14 years we've done this, and we have had some controversy. But they're they're, uh, willing to talk to the contestant and listen to his complaint and and I've never seen them not be able to explain exactly why they did what they did uh, you know it's like judging anything mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes they have to make a spur of the moment a split second decision they're certainly capable of mistakes but uh, this world championship you want as few mistakes as possible and I've not seen them make uh, they just have to make a call. They have to be intimate with the rules and know every little detail that has to take place. And they're they're able to watch those details. We have two judges in the arena at all times, so that you know sometimes they might split up their duties. You watch this, I'll watch that, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And sometimes, uh, for for instance, in that stray gathering, they might be on opposite ends of the arena. They're each watching a set of events go on and. And uh, they're able to. It requires quick thinking and very good judgment. It's hard to find a really good judge. And none of the judges, I'm assuming, are affiliated with the competing ranches. No. Or the ranches no. that are competing. Yeah, you, absolutely. You have to be impartial and all those things. Uh, you know, I think we've got a couple of the best judges in the business. And they've been with us 14 years, been tested and tried. <laughs> and. Uh, How are the 24 teams that ultimately compete make it here? (laughs) We actually have 24 sanctioned rodeos. Uh, We make those rodeos follow a set of requirements, and those requirements are based on uh, uh, to ensure the competition is is, as much like this as we can make it because they ultimately end up here. And uh, the events and those type of things are, are what we need here. Uh, those rodeos, those 24 rodeos are scattered from Florida to South Dakota. Uh, the bulk of them are within 400 miles of here. Uh, New Mexico, Texas, Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma. So uh, we've got a lot of rodeos everywhere. Now a team has to win one of those rodeos to qualify to come here. We only take 24 teams here, and there's 24 here tonight or this weekend. Uh, so everybody that's in the arena is already a winner. They have to win to get here. And Now, over the course of the 14 years that this rodeo has been held, has there been a ranch that has kind of set the standards like the New York Yankees, the Boston Celtics. We have had a few two-time winners, never a three-time winner. Hmm. No three-peats then? No three-peats. Okay. No. Uh, I, you know, the level of competition is, is pretty good. I mean, it's high. 
last night we saw new arena records, new fast times set in this arena and under the same conditions we saw arena records broken three times last night. Gary Morton is on the board of directors of the Working Ranch Cowboy Association, and he joined Traveling on Radio today to give us a lesson on uh, ranching rodeo 101. Gary, thank you so much for for joining us and uh, explaining to us about the Working Ranch Rodeo uh, Championship, which we're enjoying today. My pleasure. Long live cowboys. And when we come back, we'll introduce you to Amarillo's Kawadi Museum of the American Indian and learn about its dance program that not only entertains but shapes the lives of Amarillo's young people as global citizens. Looking for the latest travel book, the hottest item in travel gear and clothing? Or are you researching a destination or looking into the most current travel regulations or warnings? If so, visit TravelinOn.com, your one-stop shop for travel resources. At TravelinOn.com, that's Travel-N-On.com, you can get the latest travel news and information and shop for all of your travel needs. TravelinOn.com is your premier source for all things travel. That's Travel-N-On.com. We're building the best internet talk radio on the planet. I'm sorry, this is effective when? It's effective now. TalkZone.com This is the Traveling On Radio Show, bringing you a world of travel news and information. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. One of Amarillo's top attractions, the Kawadi Museum of the American Indian, is a dynamic cultural center that pays homage to Pueblo villages of New Mexico and Arizona. Its dance program has given opportunities to Amarillo's young people to explore and appreciate Native American culture through song and dance while shaping them as global ambassadors. As Charlie Ritchie, the center's director, introduces us to the Kawadis. My name is Charles Ritchie, volunteer director of the Wahati Museum of the American Indian. The elders of the Comanche, Melvin, Kirchie, and folks uh, had a dance in honor of the kids many, many years ago and gave them that name. So uh, they were honored to have that. But uh, along the way, uh, they've done over 4,000 performances now in 48 states and overseas. And we found that you couldn't get interested in Indian folk art and dance without getting interested in their art. And we began to accumulate lots of things and dream of having a place where we could do shows and display the art and have our rehearsals and things. So we began to put this design together and we opened it five years ago or on June 12th of 2004 after and so the, the Guwahati dance group rehearses here, does a lot of performances here, and also performs nationwide. This past year they went to Europe for three weeks and did 18 shows. And they were invited by the International Olympic Committee to represent North America at, in South Korea at the Extreme Games last fall. So they spent five weeks overseas this past year. A great adventure for uh, the high school and college kids. Uh, they start as young as the fifth grade. Some little brothers and sisters actually start before that, and they continue on through age 21, and then they serve in leadership capacity after that. But they're, they're basketball players and football players and um, 
they have jobs and girlfriends and schoolwork to do. I mean, they're just kids, so on any given night, you have a different combination of them. Um, so we'll we'll see what group is here tonight. This plaza is where we do the summer shows and where we do our fall show, Indian Summer. And then in the winter, what we think is our greatest effort is the winter night ceremonials. All of the museum is on wheels. It rolls into this room, and this becomes the theater. And as you go into this room, you'll see a ladder. And this is a kiva from the uh, ancient villages of the southwest. They were typically built underground, and the ladder was the ceremonial entrance. And so the dancers come down the ladder and through the doors. And it's in this corner, fabulous art and artifacts from the Tom Mayles collection. His story is on the door. We have a gift shop that uh, everybody here is a volunteer, but the uh, gift shop pays the electric bill and light bill. Yeah, well, it's drafted, too. And uh, then we have plans for phase two, which will be the, the big theater in and uh, there it's in the display case down here. Uh, if everybody was here, there would be about 26 young men, I think, that are trained to be in this show and about 18 girls. What is the, the history? Can you explain the history of the Kwati dancers? The Kwatis began in 1944 with eight boys, did a dance as part of a, it was supposed to be a one-time thing they did uh, as a project. And then the Lions wanted them to come do it for them. And the Rotary Club wanted to do it for them. And the phone kept ringing. And now it's after 4,000 shows and kids kept joining and the club grew. And it's become one of the largest collections of folk art uh, in the world of this type. They're, for the most part, they're not Indian people. They don't represent Indian people. They don't speak for Indian people. It's just a children's dance theater that does the dance styles of the Southwest. Uh, but it's a very extensive collection of the colorful songs and dances. Primary the Pueblo and Plains cultures okay. the Southwest. Yeah. The summer shows tend to be dances of the powwow uh, and Pueblo people, and the winter shows are built around the, the uh, we call it Tayoni, which is the name of the thousand-year-old ruin there in Bandelier National Monument. And the winter show is designed to... Uh, be a fanciful journey back in time. Uh, I don't think there's anywhere else in the world that you can go to my knowledge and where so many different um, dances, and we have one of the largest centers for research here, 5,000 books and so forth, um, thousands of pictures and photographs, and one of the largest centers for Native American studies is here. It was a gift from Tom Mayles, who's a noted author and artist. But uh, these kids keep alive over 76 different uh, dance sets, which are reflective of uh, you know many parts of the Southwest. And I don't think you can see that many in any one spot. Of course, we, they don't do them all at the same time, but over the course of a year, they'll typically do 35 to 40 of those in the different shows. I think there's 18 in tonight's performance. And who choreographs these dances? Well, I've spent much of my life doing that. Uh, there are others that have been involved in that. Uh, oh, there's a man in the back working now on a new piece. And uh, so it, it just kind of evolves over time from the study of art and books and visiting various doings around. There you are. A lot of, a lot of uh, Native folks have 
adopted these kids and spent time with them and taught them their particular piece. But most of what we do is very eclectic. It's not intended to copy or be anything uh, like uh, uh, what they do in in their ceremonialism. But it's a reflection of that. So you get a you get a from a, from a non-native perspective, it looks very much the same. You can sure get an overview of what the culture is like in these performances, but none of it is a religious art. It's all a dance theater for children. They do get to spend five weeks overseas, ride roller coasters, eat at every McDonald's in America. Um, uh, great kids. Uh, they learn a lot about leadership. It's their show. They have to lead it backstage and on stage. Um, they teach crafts and dance skills, regalia to each other. Older kids passing it down to the younger kids. That's what it's been for decades. We have adult staff. We call them the Big Red Circle. Wear the red shirts. And the support staff, there go a couple of mean, honorary kids. It's good for them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they're super dancers. When we return, the American Quarter Horse is the most popular horse breed in the world, and Amarillo is its center thanks to the American Quarter Horse Association. We'll tour the museum and hall of fame that celebrates this horse as the traveling on radio show continues. Officials are concerned about a new influenza virus of swine origin that's spreading from person to person. Officials are acting to combat this threat, but the outbreak could grow. Prepare now. Check with local leaders, schools, employers, and other community groups about their plans regarding an outbreak in your community. It's important for everyone to know what to do about swine flu. For details, visit www.cdc.gov slash swine flu or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. A message from HHS. It's the First Amendment, broadband style. It's a safe, well-engineered, perfectly designed machine. TalkZone.com. Internet talk radio. TalkZone.com. Now, more of the Travelin' On Radio Show on TalkZone.com. If you love horses like I do, pay a visit to the American Quarter Horse Hall of Fame and Museum, just a short horse ride from downtown Amarillo. The Hall of Fame showcases the colorful history and modern activities of the world's most popular breed of horse and the people who have played a major role in its history, as we learn from the Hall's director, Ross Middleton. For those of you that don't know, the horse was extinct on the North American continent for over 4 million years until the Spanish reintroduced the horse uh, when the Spanish explorers came over. Sometime later... uh, the European, the Northern European, began coming over uh, to the, to what then was becoming the colonies. Uh, they also brought horses with them. Uh, they also brought the culture of horse racing with them. A uh, little geography lesson, Europe had been settled for centuries. And over time, uh, there was a great deal of land that had been cleared. And racetracks as we know them today were being, were being built and being used in Europe during that period of time. When they came to the colonies, um, that land, uh, for those of you that are familiar with that part of the country, it's very hilly, very rocky, and, and forested. Uh, 
clearing of land was done by hand uh, because it was a mechanized society. Uh, was very time and labor intensive. So it was very hard to clear enough land to build what we think of as a racetrack. So they began racing the horses uh, down the paths and county and country roads and that sort of thing. And so they established a dis- distance of a quarter of a mile because that was an easy distance to find a flat, straight road or path, uh, usually through the middle of town uh, or, or a village. And like any other sport, like we see today, anytime there's a sport and people decide they like it and they want to be good at it, then they start I'm not, I'm breeding to the attributes that it takes. Ergo, the American quarter horse. Quarter mile racing. Um, as the colonists moved west, uh, then those English horses uh, that, were, that had been bred to run very fast in a short distance came in contact with the horses that the Spanish had, by that period, had basically abandoned and the Indians had had. Uh, and there were also uh, feral horses as well. Uh, and those horses became in contact with them where they bought some more speed. Their agility and their stamina came from those horses and evolved into what is now a uniquely American breed um, from where we get American quarter horse. So this breed was truly developed here. Uh, the history of the horse directly follows the history of the United States. The Hall of Fame... They, they had always wanted this building to be a Hall of Fame. Uh, the Hall of Fame actually started in 1982. They started inducting members into the Hall of Fame in 1982. By the time they were ready to build a Hall of Fame, there weren't that many people in the Hall of Fame. People or horses. We, we induct people and horses. Um, there weren't that many. And so it would, it would have been very hard to dedicate this entire building to what at the time was about 16 people. <laughs> 10 or 11 horses. I was looking at some of the horses and I found one of my favorites. <laughs> what criteria is used to induct a horse into the Hall of Fame? Is, uh, is it because they're the best of the best breed or they're champions uh, like the traveler? performance or offspring. Uh, performance, uh, like any athlete, dominant for a period of time in a particular sport. Uh, so that would be the same types of criteria that would elect you to the basketball, the football, the baseball Hall of Fame. Dominant in your sport over a consistent period, over a, over a length of time. Um, some, some of them over almost a lifetime. Uh, the other, and this can be a combination of both, the other is offspring. And the dominance of that offspring or the quality of that offspring over a period of time and, and offspring's offspring that criteria also so those two could be separate and then in some cases it's a combination of both now we're also we're back in the uh, grand hall here where there's a uh, a map of bloodlines of the american quarter horse talk to us about what we're viewing right now um well it, this is it's basically a foundation bloodline so um predominantly the horses on this on this bloodline chart or pedigree if you will are stallions Mm -hmm. and so these are the dominant stallions the foundation stallions um, that had great impact on the breed that 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 produced the foundation of the breed if you will Um, the 
chart actually begins on the upper left-hand corner with a blooded horse named Janus uh, that was imported from England, brought over, brought over with the colonists. Uh, directly below that um, is another horse named Janus. Um, it was very popular, uh, really during the entire period of time that this represents, uh, to name a horse after another horse. Uh, so the first Janus is the imported horse. The second is his son that was born here. Um, we can trace almost every horse today indirectly traces back mm. to that horse. Or there's another horse right in the middle of the chart named Sir Archie, another blooded horse, European blooded horse that was imported um, into the U.S. Uh, both in the mid-1700s. Uh, and then uh, as we go through the bloodline chart, we get... Here to the bottom, horses of about the 1950 era. Okay. Um, so that's a pretty big expanse of time that, that you're talking about, um, given that a horse uh, during that period of time didn't live much past 20. Uh, so this is a big expanse of time that we, that we cover here. As we get closer to the bottom of the bloodline chart, you'll, you begin to notice horses that have a number after their name. Uh, again, it was still very popular to name one horse after another, especially if it was um, had some prominence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were uh, one of one of the most prominent names that you'll see here is King Two Thirty Four. Uh, there were about twelve different kings during his mm-hmm. lifetime. Um, as soon as these horses were registered, it became practice to put their registration number after the name, so that others would know that that this is the registered king as opposed to all the other kings. Uh, now, I note with some of the horses, there's in parenthetical the TB. What is that? Uh, that denotes a thoroughbred, okay. and, and that's still a practice that's, that's common today in the racing industry is we still breed back to the thoroughbreds okay. just to keep that racing vigor mm-hmm. in, in the bloodline. Uh, like, like any breed of any animal, uh, you do periodically have to go outside to produce that hybrid vigor uh, in the bloodline. And those horses are noted uh, in registration as an appendixed horse, uh, the offspring of, of a thoroughbred sire to a, to a quarter horse mare or, or vice versa. Uh, those would be noted, noted on the pedigrees. Now talk to us about the dramatic medallion here in the Grand Hall. Um, Again, this is a, a, a sculpture, it's a bas-relief of the Horn Mixer's painting, The Ideal American Quarter Horse. Um, it, it was produced strictly for the dramatic effect at the end. It was, it's the anchor piece to the end of the Hall of Fame. Um, it was sculpted in clay, over 1,400 pounds of clay. Wow. Um, then it was actually cast in resin just because of the weight. That medallion is 13 feet in wow. diameter. And so just the sheer weight of having cast that, if that would have been cast in bronze, just the, the structure of the wall would have just had to have been immense to hold that mm-hmm. up. So it was actually cast in resin and then patinaed in bronze. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is Warren Mixer's paint box. And he's really, uh, I'll, when we go back downstairs, I'll take you into the theater so you can see a big collection of his paintings. Is he still uh, with us? Or? He's not. He oh. passed away last year. Uh, uh, he was a very gregarious person. Loved to be around people. Loved mm-hmm. to talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, hugged every girl he ever met. <laughs> uh, awesome. uh, and 
he was he had actually finished a painting and had taken it to the lady uh, who he finished it for, mm. and and passed away in her home while they were doing the painting presentation. But he was doing exactly what he liked to do. You know, he was around a bunch of people he liked, oh. and they were having a good time, and which is great. I mean, mm-hmm. if if you'd had to ask him if it wasn't on his bulldozer, which he loved to drive. Uh, <laughs> He was very much a hands-on building person. When you see the paintings, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that I think you will be struck by are the frames. And he's almost as famous for the frames that he built for his paintings mm-hmm. as he is for his paintings. But probably one of the most prolific painters of the American quarters. I'd say one of the most interesting things about the museum is, is that you do relate it to a place where, I guess the non-horse person can come in and at least see the timeline around points of history and things that uh, perhaps can make the relevance of, uh, of, of the American quarter horse uh, have some salience for them. So, One of the neatest artifacts, or I think the neatest group of artifacts that we have is, is this little group of dirty little books. Uh, this, is, this is actually the beginning of the American Port Horse Association. Mm-hmm. This is the Holy Grail. The lady, uh, Helen Michaelis, was the first secretary of AQHA. She was also, uh, uh, she kept the pedigree as a hobby. I mean, this was her, this was her, uh, this was her thing, you know, mm-hmm. to, to track these pedigrees. Um, in these four steno books that you see laying here, that is the first stud books, that's the first registry books in mm-hmm. her handwriting. Of the American Quarter Horse Association, so this is really where it all began, right mm-hmm. here at her kitchen table. She also kept these scrapbooks. We have about fifty of them. Um, these scrapbooks of pictures of horses, because if you remember, as I told you, prior to 1940, there were no quarter horses, mm-hmm. and so these are inspection photos. These are photos they would take out on the ranch while they were doing the inspections of these horses, and so this is really the first one of the first comprehensive photo records of the breed uh, that there is. And, and they use, you said, the paper trail and physical attributes mm-hmm. to determine. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Yes, ma'am. So, you know, in a way, this is, I mean, this is really it. This is really, mm-hmm. uh, you could argue, one of the most important artifacts that we have in our entire collection. Yeah, and, and, and I would say that this kind of speaks to the fact that even at this point in time, and we're probably talking in the, the 40s, that that your organization and, and what we have here and what we're looking at today can be traced directly to the efforts of, of a woman who had this as her passion and as an, as an avocation of sorts. Right. And uh, lo and behold, we kind of owe it all to her. In, in, in large part. Now, just out of curiosity... How much of a focus or, or an emphasis does the uh, archival side of the museum have on, let's say, the relationship of the American quarter horse and American presidents? Because seeing Eisenhower, it makes me think of all of our presidents in recent time, and I think about Ronald Reagan and uh, George Bush, uh, uh, 43 here, as we uh, uh, think about Texas and uh, the West, and, I, and I'm wondering how many things do you have in uh, your your archives and uh, uh, just artifacts that kind of speak to that relationship? Um, 
we have um, we have some items from a Hall of Fame member, uh, Oren Mixer from Oklahoma, who uh, is the artist that did the painting Ideal American Quarter Horse, which is the basis for the sculpture at the front front doors. Um, he actually painted several horses for Ron and, and Nancy okay. Reagan. And from your Arabian standpoint, uh, Ron was a quarter horse guy, hmm. and Nancy was an Arabian, <laughs> uh, and so they had both. They had both Michigan, Arabs. Michigan State. See, there you go. There you go. Um, yeah, it's the same, but not quite. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Um, and, and Mr. Mixer, as as he was wont to do, painted several paintings, and then just showed up. Mm-hmm. At the Reagan's Ranch, while Reagan was president, mm-hmm. at the Reagan's Ranch in California, knocked on the front gate and told the Secret Service, "I've got paintings for Ron. He's expecting me." <laughs> and Mr. Reagan actually invited yeah. him in, and so he was able to present. So we have photographs of that okay. presentation, which was done in front of his horse trailer. Mr. Mixer carried things around mm-hmm. in a horse trailer mm-hmm. that he used as a mobile studio, mm-hmm. and. Um, and he actually, they let him in, and, and he and Mr. Reagan uh, went for a ride, and he presented the paintings to him and that sort of stuff. So we have that. Mm-hmm. So not really anything directly, mm-hmm. but indirectly through a Hall of Fame member. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have a saddle downstairs. We just walked past it uh, that was made for, uh, by a third party, it was made for uh, President Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, 41 or 43? 43. 43. Um, but... It has not been presented to him yet because they did not want to present it to him while he was in office because the value of that saddle is great enough that it would have gone to the National Archives, should have gone to the National Archives. Mm -hmm. Some of our presidents have not followed that rule. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, Mr. Bush will come here and and that saddle will be presented to him by a third party. now, one thing that I noticed is that there was a stadium outside, grandstands, and mm-hmm. uh, so you actually bring horses here as well as we, part of the uh, educational of the program. Okay. Right. And so that's largely a demonstration arena. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's small and it's oddly shaped, so you really can't do any competition. But we bring horses in, especially for camp in the summer, so that those kids can be around a horse. We do, um, of course, school field trips like any other museum, and we try to have horses here for the field trips. Uh, we also bring uh, one of the projects of the American Quarter Horse Foundation, which is the nonprofit part of AQHA. Uh, the museum is one of, one of five programs of the foundation. Um, but one of those programs is uh, called America's Horse Cares, which is therapeutic riding. And we bring the handicapped kids here from school to give them a first-hand experience with the horse. And then we coordinate with a therapeutic riding center to bring quarter horses from the riding center here to the museum Hmm. Uh, because we have corporate partners that pay for busing. Just for the benefit of our listeners, Ross, how um, could they become involved? Is is AQHA, AQHA is a membership-driven organization, but the museum itself, how can our listeners support the well, museum? A, a, an AQHA membership is is a museum membership. Uh, for years, we have um, we've promoted an AQHA membership as a museum membership. Um, you get all the benefits uh, that you would associate with a with a museum membership. Um, you get free admission to the museum. You and your family get free admission to the museum. Uh, you get a national publication uh, that goes to over 300,000 people. Uh, it's called America's Horse. 
Uh, it's modeled a little bit after People magazine, so it's very much a hands-on type of, it's a lifestyle type of magazine, as opposed to uh, an industry business magazine, which is what the Quarter Horse Journal is. is very much a business magazine. America's Horse is the People magazine. Um, it's got really great stories in it. It's got um, all kinds of health care and training tips, that sorts of things. It's a great magazine. Um, so you get a subscription to that. Uh, you get discounts or benefits with all of our corporate partners with that. Uh, and it's really affordable. It's $40 a year. Uh, it's really affordable. Um, and how can the listeners find out more about the association? Uh, the website is, a, is the, it's AQHA.com. Uh, from AQHA.com, you can get to any department of AQHA. You can find out about any of the different disciplines from there. Um, the American Quarter Horse Foundation has a link which will get you to the museum. Uh, the museum's website is aqhhalloffame.com. Uh, that'll take you directly to the museum. There's actually a membership button, but it's going to get you an AQHA membership. Ross Middleton, director of the American Quarter Horse Hall of Fame, thank you so much for joining us today on the Traveling on Radio Show. Sure. Thank you. Our pleasure. For more information on this and other Amarillo attractions, go to visit AmarilloTX.com. When we return, we'll debut a new segment as we introduce you to this month's Traveling Angel. You're listening to the Traveling On radio show, soon to be World Footprints, with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. Hello there. You've discovered TalkZone.com, the best in Internet talk radio. This is the Travelin' On Radio Show, bringing you a world of travel news and information. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Be the change you want to see in the world. It's one of our favorite quotes from Mahatma Gandhi and expresses our values of global citizenship and responsible tourism. A few months ago, we started a series called Travelin' Hearts, where we introduced individuals, travel angels really, who are making a difference during the course of their travels. Today, we are honored to introduce you to another traveling angel, Tammy Van Dyke. Tammy Van Dyke is a serial entrepreneur and humanitarian whose greatest passion is sharing the hope of Jesus. In 2001, Tammy co-founded World Hope Missions, a faith-based organization dedicated to helping women and children around the world. Today, World Hope Missions has helped bring clean water to remote villages, provide food and clothing to communities in need, and has helped create small business opportunities for poverty-stricken families. Tammy has just returned from South Africa, and the foundation is working on some amazing projects in India, and Tammy joins us today to tell us all about it. Welcome to our show, Tammy. Thank you, Tanya. Tammy, what was the genesis for World Hope Missions? Well, this story actually started about 12 years ago when I was a stay-at-home mom and I had two young children, but I felt God calling me to do some work um, in children's homes. And so I started to do some research 
about possibly doing a short-term mission trip to a children's home, perhaps somewhere close by, but nothing kind of came together. So I just sat that on the back burner and knew that at some point in the future, if it was supposed to happen, it would. And in about November of 2000, I got an unexpected email from an organization in India requesting help with starting a children's home there. And I was kind of shocked and wasn't sure that that was what I had had on my radar. But for some reason, I couldn't let it go. So we pursued it, um, conversations for about six months. And finally, my husband said in the early spring of 2001, that I wouldn't probably ever know for sure exactly what the need was and what was going on there unless I made a personal visit. So Mm -hmm. he suggested I ask my dad to go with me, and three weeks later we were on the ground in India. So had your dad been there before? No, neither of us had been there, and neither of us really knew much about India or you know, had that that calling earlier, but we both knew that this was definitely a God thing and we needed to go. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so you were obedient. That's always wonderful. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, what was your feeling about India when you when you arrived? Did you uh, embrace the country? Did it really touch your heart? How how did that feel for you? Well, it was really exciting, and of course, their culture is really different than ours. So you always have a culture shock. And I didn't have a lot of experience with developing countries. So it was um, very different and very sad on one hand and very emotional Mm. and very tiring, but there was so much need around us, and we knew that if this was God's plan, He would show us exactly what it was that we were supposed to do, what part we were supposed to play in all of that. And so it was on the trip home from India on the plane, my dad and I just looked at each other and knew that God was going to have us do work there. Mm -hmm. And he gave us this incredible compassion and love for the people. And it was just kind of wonderful, the transformation and how he placed, literally placed in us a real desire to help these people. Now, Tammy, in addition to tackling uh, poverty elimination, the organization is also tackling the eradication of crimes against children. Talk to us about this important issue and some of the uh, things that uh, World Hope Missions is doing to make a difference in this area. Well, a couple of years ago when I was actually in India, um, some of our coworkers there um, in India showed me a newspaper article, and apparently this was not an uncommon thing but they find baby girls thrown away in the trash or next to the road. And even though we had been working in India for many, many years, this aspect of their society had never kind of come across our paths. And so as soon as I read that, my heart was just broken, and I knew that God was calling us not only to do the projects that he had already called us to, but to tackle this new aspect of female infanticide in India. Mm. And 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 have you um, partnered with any um, you know NGOs or UN Commission on Human Rights or UNICEF or any 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 uh, authoritative body that has helped raise awareness? Because I think that that's part of what you're trying to do uh, with this issue. But uh, but as far as enforcement, how is that working? And how are you? Uh, tackling this, going head-to-head with this issue? 
Right. We have been working with a local NGO in India since our very beginning of working there, and this organization does a lot of other work as well. Um, We currently are working with the government of India. One of the ways that the government has come through to help battle the female infanticide or the unwanted female child is to set up and license adoption homes within India. So we have been in the process now for over a year, and it's kind of a multifaceted process to be able and be licensed to open a home that is basically a rescue home for baby girls or boys um, from newborn to three years old. We already have a home license. We have a girls' home and a boys' home in India Mm -hmm. that takes care of children three and up. Hmm. Now, Tammy, you've just returned from South Africa, one of the countries where Tanya and I have had the uh, good fortune of visiting, a place that really had a major impact on us as we celebrated our honeymoon there a few years ago. Uh, tell us about uh, South Africa and and what you gained out of that trip and what the organization will be doing there going forward. Yeah, South Africa was very different than India, of course, so it's like you get to learn all about a new culture and a new people. I was Mm -hmm. fortunate to have some friends on the ground there, local people that were born and raised in South Africa that could kind of help us. So we got to hear a lot about the history, about the story in South Africa. The need is very different there. Um, While in India, it's all over the place and it's very visible, in South Africa, we found it was a little bit more hidden, and of course, we all know they have kind of a tumultuous past, and, mm-hmm. and so they have their own story there. But we did visit many children's homes. There's also a lot of a lot of issues um, against children in South Africa as well. But it was really interesting to hear it from different sides of the story. And so it was a very unique trip and we really really enjoyed it. Are there are there other countries that um World Hope Missions will have a presence in or other other projects around the world that you're working on or hoping to work on in the near future? Well, we always are open to the needs that come across our path. Um we are currently researching some children's projects in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. So we'll see if those go anywhere. But right now we are researching and um, doing our uh, brainstorming, if you will, on the needs in South Africa. And we probably will, you know, we'll work on that and focus on India and South Africa for a while. And if something comes across our plate, we will definitely research it and see what part we're supposed to play in that as well. And and how can the the public, our listening public who's... who's, uh hearing your story right now, how can they get involved in and assist you in your efforts? Well, we really are focusing right now on our children's home in India as far as bringing it out to the public. We have 50-some children there. Um, we took in some new children recently, and these homes were established so that the children who normally would never be able to receive an education can come, and they may have parents or they may not, But our focus is always to build the foundation of the hope of Jesus Christ. And then on top of that, the next step is that we like to provide a good quality education, especially for the children, because we believe that is their hope in Mm -hmm. breaking the cycle of poverty. So we do have a child sponsorship program, and because we recently took in some new children, we are seeking sponsors for those children. And it's amazing how little it takes to 
seriously change a child's life forever. And the relationships that are built between the American people and the children in these homes is amazing. It's a, it's a bond that will last forever. So that probably is our biggest challenge right now. Mm-hmm. And all of that information can be found on our website. At? Uh, worldhopemissions.org. <laughs> I knew it. I, I had it memorized, but I thought I'd let you share it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, and, and for families who are interested in perhaps adopting um, a child that will be placed in this, the, the adoption home that you're, you're helping to create, um, yeah. how can they find out information about uh, adoption procedures now? Perhaps, you know, they may not want to wait until the home is, is settled, but uh, I know there are, as you mentioned, uh, many children who are being, and I, and I hate to sound crass, but they're being disposed of uh, today. And so there is, there is an immediate need uh, today, and in so many families here in this country, in the United States, and around the world, uh, who who are ready, willing, and able to welcome a child into the home. So, how, uh, what resources are available to them uh, to adopt today? Yeah, the basic thing would probably just to be in touch and maintain communications with us. Um, the challenge with India, within India itself, is that once a home is a, a licensed as an adoption home, they have to have a history of um, intra-country adoption first. And so usually the government of India will require an adoption home to place the children within the country for about three years until there is a, a proven history of the organization. Mm-hmm. And at that time, then it is possible to actually apply for an international adoption license, and that ultimately is our plan. Mm -hmm. Um, It will take some time to do that, but we are always happy to communicate with people if God lays that on their heart and kind of keep them apprised of the situation. Now, Tammy, in in all of your experience in doing this, has there been one instance, one, one encounter that really touched your heart that you could share with us? There is, and, and the one that stands out right now is an encounter with a woman in South Africa. Her name is Aletta, and she is my hero. Um, when she was a young child at about eight years old, she, she was um, the child of a, a prostitute. She's an Afrikaner woman, um, but her mother was, had some drug addiction problems, and when she was eight, she abandoned her in the Cape Town train station. Mm. And until she was 11 years old, she literally lived there. She did not attend school. She did not have a parent. There was a woman from India who worked as a cleaner in the train station, and she kind of took care of Aletta. She laid her bedding out every night. And the thing that really broke my heart was that as a little girl, she would watch her mother walk by her without recognizing her, Mm. the mother recognizing Aletta or... um, paying any attention to her. So she was a very wounded little girl. And when she grew up, she finally did get into a foster home and and attended school. And when she was an adult, she knew that she had to take care of children. And so she finally broke down. It took her a long time. She went to the hospital and said, if you ever have an abandoned baby, I will take her or take it. And so not more than a month later, she had her first four-day-old baby. And so she has opened a foster home. She her and her husband, her husband has a job, but her, they literally are parents 
to 22 children. Mm. And their children have the stories that just are devastating, that no young child should ever have to go through. And she loves and takes care of all of those kids, and God has used her painful past so she can have compassion and take care and um, love on these little kids that so desperately need it. And so she is an awesome, awesome woman. And Well, yeah. and, and we think you're an awesome, awesome woman, too. And, and we thank you so much for, for everything you're doing. You know, we, we take a lot for granted, our, our blessings, and, and we don't... We don't show proper gratitude uh, sometimes uh, for the blessings we have, and, and I think you just reminded us all uh, of, of, of how much we do have, and, uh, and I thank you for that, and just thank you for being a wonderful global citizen and uh, a, a, a travel angel, a true travel angel, and uh, we appreciate you being on our show today, and this uh, has been Tammy Van Dyke. We've enjoyed a nice conversation with Tammy Van Dyke, the founder of World Hope Missions, this month's Traveling Angel. And uh, before we leave today, we're uh, delighted to share with you an exciting change in the coming weeks. Uh, Traveling on Radio will undergo a small transition and will be soon known as World Footprints. We will continue sharing great content and wonderful guests. And, of course, we will continue with our celebration of culture, heritage, and responsible travel. And we'll leave positive footprints one step at a time, like our traveling angel, Tammy Van Dyke. Tammy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tanya. And thank you again for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you during the week on Facebook and Twitter. So join us on our social networks and sign up for our newsletter and our weekly deal alerts at TravelNRadio.com. That's N as in Nancy, TravelNRadio.com. It's been a pleasure to share some travel time with you. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, leave positive footprints and make positive legacies one step at a time. 